When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you could possibly think of, has its own history, like praise, beetroot, and bins. James, that's a very Ooh. good suggestion. Bins. <laughs> I like. I, I, I want to do all of those, Sam, particularly praise at the moment. I think people are in need of praise. However, we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew, Sam, that the history of blood is in fact all about recruitment during World War II, it's about anti-Semitism, and it's about the American Red Cross and giving blood? Or who knew that the history of King Arthur is in fact all about the Battle of Britain? And those were both from our terrific little World War II book that we wrote about a year or so ago. Absolutely, World War II themes it is. Um, you'll be wondering who is doing this chatting. Let me tell you that the man not sitting opposite me, because we are uh, social distancing in this unpleasant time of lockdown, uh, let's just say that if history, right, you've got to bear with me here, if you, if you imagine history as the military conflicts of the Second World War, uh, this man would be Stalingrad, D-Day, Operation Barbarossa, even Operation Slapstick, which I know none of you have ever heard of, but it was the Allied force that landed at the Italian port of Taranto in September 43. He'd also be Operation Screwdriver from 1944, Operation Carpetbagger from 1943, and Operation Cornflakes <laughs> from 1945, which is my new favourite World War II operation. Um, operation Complex, James, the insertion of propaganda into the German mail system. My point, dear listeners, of course, <laughs> is that this man would uh, would be all of the most significant World War II operations all mixed up together. Uh, he is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's Professor James Daybell. Hello, Sam. I quite like the idea of cornflakes. Cornflakes <laughs> yeah. and carpet bagging. I, th I think I can identify with that very strongly. However, the man not sitting opposite me, because we are social distancing in... What is it? Lockdown 3.0, I think, it's at the moment. Well, let's just lockdown. say if he were a figure from World War II, he'd only be Winston Churchill himself. <laughs> Historian, politician, able orator and accomplished artist, all rolled into one magnificent bundle. Yes, you've guessed it. It's the famous historical adventurer himself and my dear friend across town, 
Dr. Sam Willis, who's wearing uh, a very fetching bobble hat today. Uh, I'm not in the same room as him, um, no. but um, I can see him on my Zoom camera. He yeah. looks amazing, Sam. Is it cold where you are? Uh, it is quite cold. We've, we've um, Even though everyone is in the house all day at the time, we've got to not put the heating on. <laughs> so oh, God, it's... Yeah, it's cold in it's, there. It's positively Hawaiian here. <laughs> uh, people, we're all in shorts and t-shirts because the house is so hot. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Very good. Ridiculous. Uh, um, yes, hello everyone. I'm here, and today you might have guessed from um, that little introduction where there are all sorts of World War Two themes flying around. I very much hope you're all going to go and find out what Operation Carpetbagger and Operation Screwdriver were. That's your homework. Uh, we are just going to do um, something on. Hitler. Now, uh, I wanted to do this because uh, I wanted to talk to a very good friend of mine, Frank McDonough, who's written a new book on the history of Hitler. And an interview with Frank comes after this initial chat with me and James. But we just wanted to talk a little bit about um, about Hitler and how there are so many ways that you have to think about him or you can think about him. Um, but we decided to give it a bit of a bash. So James Hitler, off you go. Hitler. <laughs> well, I mean, my, I've always been... Uh, fascinated by Hitler and Nazi Germany, not only in terms of the man and what makes him tick, him as a leader, the ideologue behind him, the intersection of his personal life with with political structures, but also the phenomenon of the Third Reich. And it's something that I studied at GCSE and A-level many, many years ago. And, you know, I've always been interested in explaining how this happened so thinking about how they come into power, the fact that they are voted in by a plebiscite, uh, the the sort of attitude of Europe and appeasement that we, we've talked about in the past, you know, how they control the country. So looking at, at sort of structures and personnel and society and the running of the state, uh, economy and the war effort, um, their, the final solution and their attitude towards Jews, propaganda and the Gestapo. And also, how does how does the political world of the Third Reich work? How do you fit Hitler in with all his sort of idiosyncrasies and madnesses and, and foibles? And how does the decision making process work around him? And there is this sort of morass, this sort of very competitive environment in which people are competing uh to sort of put their their view forward. So he sort of allows almost this sort of degree of freedom. He doesn't really give much strong leadership other than saying what he wants done. He doesn't say how it wants to be done. And then people sort of, you know, fit in around that and work in a really sort of ruthless way within that system. Um, other big questions are about what did people know about about this? You know, how far were they, you know, complicit? Were they, you know, did they know the terror that was going on? Were they acting out of terror? Or were they oblivious to it? How much did people know about uh, the the final solution, the extermination of the Jews? And these are big historical questions that actually the historiographically uh, German historians didn't engage with much in the immediate aftermath of World War Two. But also thinking about how you get at the personal life of Hitler. And one of my favourite anecdotes about Hitler uh, comes from a volume of Stephen Fry's autobiographies. Um, where he talks about meeting Alistair Cook. Alistair Cook had set up this sort of acting society at Cambridge. Stephen Fry then asked him to come across 
uh, and talk. And, and Alistair Cook, famed for Letter from America, uh, flew himself across from the United States, attended the dinner and then regaled the table, uh, including Stephen Fry, with this anecdote about his time as, as a student in Germany before the war. And he talks about being in this beer garden and seeing these sort of uh, stretcher bearers uh, and sort of um, uh, sort of paramedics uh, in places. You think, what, what, what on earth are these people here for? And then the beer garden suddenly gets more and more crowded. And then this moustached um, individual stands up on stage and gives this rousing speech, at which point several members of the audience keel over, fainting, and have to be sort of stretched off. And as the speech is over, the man gets down, walks through the audience, and barges shoulders with Alistair Cook, uh, and says to him, Entschuldigung, mein Herr. So, uh, you know, do excuse me, sir. And, of course, uh, the person who barged his shoulder was, in fact, Adolf Hitler. Uh, so it shows you, you know, how little anecdotes like that can actually get at the the sort of life, you know, the real-life um, sort of experiences of you know great figures, and and in fact, I suppose you're in, in a sort of surreal sense. You're you're only a few degrees of separation from very famous people. So there we are, a little sort of four penneth, five penneth, two penneth, two penneth, uh, a, a little little sort of offering uh, at the outset. Very good. I mean, one of the things I wanted to talk to Frank about particularly was uh, various issues. I've always been fascinated by. Uh, Hitler and his um, his boasting uh, as much as anything else. If you think about him at the beginning, Germany at the start of 1940, he, he Hitler boasts very much about himself, but also about the country that he's responsible for. Um, uh, but it was still a medium-sized economic and military power. It, it didn't have very defensible borders. It was surrounded by a range of potential enemies. And I always love this idea of Hitler essentially talking himself up and also talking up the country that he was representing. Um, the idea of, of Hitler as a private man, uh, James mentioned there, this is very important. It's something I discussed with Frank because one of the key things about Hitler is that there aren't any Hitler diaries. It was actually, um, it was claimed that they were discovered and they were published uh, several years ago, but it's complete nonsense. Hitler destroyed all of his private papers. Um, so it's very difficult to actually get to know the man. There are all sorts of important questions about writing biography as much as anything else. But Hitler's uh, private life, um, uh, very, very difficult indeed to get to. And you need to be aware that there are several, there are several aspects to Hitler's character which all require their own um, separate investigation. And also, um, the, the way that Hitler declined, that's very important. If you think about what happened between 1940 and 1945, and, and Hitler's decline almost mirroring the collapse of German society around him, I think that's very important. And one of the key things to realise is that Hitler at the end of the war is very much not the same person as Hitler at the beginning of the war. So much has changed. Another key theme I wanted to discuss was uh, this question of responsibility and control, which um, James mentioned there, to what extent was Hitler actually responsible for everything? To what extent was he to blame for everything? And the, the, the important thing you need to realise here is that 
it all varies according to when you're talking about and what subjects you're talking about, whether very broadly you're talking about domestic politics or if you're talking about uh, the operations of the Navy as opposed to the operations of the Army. He particularly had a great deal of control with the operation of the Army and less so elsewhere. Um, the, the Holocaust is a very interesting one. That's something that he very much handed over responsibility to and it's something that Frank talks about. So those are some key themes which I think will actually give you a, an unexpected approach to thinking about Hitler. Um, essentially he's all about boasting and meddling and privacy <laughs> and blame. Well, this, yes, uh, th- this idea of the of the private life of him and actually his boasting relates to you know, various aspects of his of his life. If you think about the way in which he talked up his service during World War One. This is a man who was deeply proud of having got an Iron Cross first class uh, during the First World War. In fact, when he was discovered um, having when the, when he committed suicide, uh, he was apparently wearing uh, this medal, um, and he made quite a lot of you know noise about you know what a, a sort of distinguished war career he had during the First World War. Um, he was wounded in the Somme in 1916, but actually, he he claims that you know never a day went past when he wasn't under immediate threat. And actually, if you look at it, he wasn't in the front line in the trenches. He was actually a runner from headquarters. And when he was blinded by mustard gas attack in 1918, or he claimed that he was blinded by it, this has been challenged by medical records that actually show that he suffered from something called hysterical blindness. Almost that he was made, you know, he was a sort of psychological, um, you know, it was a psychological phenomenon that he was experiencing. So there's this sense of of almost sort of deception there, very similar to the sort of deception about Germany, the strength of Germany. You know, he's wanting to present himself as much stronger, much bolder than, you know, than he... um, than he really is. And then if you dig into, I was doing a little bit of reading around for this and digging into some of the things that I didn't actually know, that he actually acquired vast wealth throughout this period, was siphoning off money, royalties from his book Mein Kampf, which was given to uh, newlyweds, all those royalties were coming to him. He paid no income tax during this period. He amassed massive properties, uh, bought all sorts of artwork, um, he also, uh, I think it's quite well known that although he was teetotaler and vegetarian, he also had something of a drug habit and his personal physician uh, injected him with methamphetamine, morphine, cocaine. Um, and, you know, this had a real sort of impact on him. And the other thing that I think is worth knowing is and one of the big sources for you getting at him psychologically is his book Mein Kampf, My Struggle, uh, which was published in two volumes in 1925 and then the second one in 1927. This actually wasn't particularly popular until the Nazis got into power and then it became required reading. Uh, And apparently by about the start of the Second World War in 1939, about five million copies had been sold. But immediately after his death, uh, it was banned. So one of the books that was the most popular in German history was in fact banned and outlawed. And it wasn't actually allowed to be reprinted in Germany until 2016 when the copyright lapsed. But 
Before that, it was the German state of Bavaria that had the copyright and refused to grant any sort of publishing rights to it. Although we do have copies of it being published on on the continent. The other thing to think about is, you know, we know of him as an artist, a sort of failed artist. Um, but the kind of he had an interest in art as as leader. Uh, it tended to be an interest in classical art. He saw modern art as degenerative um and you know didn't didn't really uh, appreciate it and 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 modern artists works were shown in in 1937 in a tour that sort of you know went around the country uh paintings by Klee by Picasso but all labeled described as cultural docu documents of the decadent work of bolsheviks and jews and what's fascinating also is the way in which the Nazis plundered uh, art treasures uh, across Europe uh, with the intention of a something called a Führer Museum, which is a sort of super museum uh, that he wanted to set up in Linz in, in Austria to uh, house all of these fantastic works in the period after the war. So there we are, just a sort of few sort of little things of getting at his his sort of private life from from the sources that we have. I've made a documentary about um, art stolen in Italy and um, how it was taken to a castle and protected. It was um, it was something I made for National Geographic. But in the process of that, I, I looked at the architectural plans for the Führer Museum. Suddenly, suddenly come back to me. But it was one of my one of my most entertaining things. Um, and anyway, and as you are listening to this do bear in mind how all of these themes do interlink with other stuff we're doing hitler obsessed with um scapegoats blaming uh, the jews in particular um he blamed them for he 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 very much bought into the um it was called in the stab in the back myth um the myth that the first world war was not actually uh, lost by germans on the battlefield but was lost on the home front as the all of those germans who had been fighting were stabbed in the back uh, by Jews at home not supporting them enough. Um, we've done an, an episode on ba the history of backstabbers. Um, and uh, we would talk about there about the rise of Stalin and in relation to the death of Lenin. So there's another chapter in that. Also, we've done, if you think about Hitler destroying his papers, we've done a chapter, we've done a, uh, an episode on the history of privacy. Um, so do think about it in terms of that to go and check out the episode on the history of privacy. Boasting, Hitler's boasting's important. We've got a homeschooling episode on big heads, uh, homeschooling Henry VIII, if you ever want a better boaster in history. I'm not sure you can find one than Henry VIII. And again, blame. Who's to blame for the war? Who's to blame for the German failure? Who's to blame for the Holocaust? To what extent is Hitler to be held responsible? Those themes are all discussed as well. Uh, but in relation to the Versailles Treaty and the blame attributed to Germany um, at the end of the First World War. So there are all sorts of fascinating, unexpected themes that we do discuss here that are related to Hitler and um, that, that can, can make their own wonderful little histories in their own right. So here's Frank, uh, Frank McDonough. He's Professor of History at Liverpool's John Moores University. He's a, a real heavyweight of historians on Twitter. I'd urge you to find him, to follow him. He's the author of several outstanding books on various aspects of the Third Reich and the Second World War. His latest book is just out. It's the second edition of his enormous two-volume work on the Third Reich entitled The Hitler Years. And this one, uh, his latest one, is Disaster, 1940 to 1945. Anyway, here you are. Here's Frank. I hope you enjoy the interview. 
Frank, I'm delighted to have this book, The Hitler Years Disaster 1940 to 5, in my hand. You must be delighted to have finished it. Yeah, well, it's taken quite a long time. You know, it's it's taken nearly four years to complete the two volumes. The first volume was called Triumph, 1933 to 1939. And this second one. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Yeah, it's, 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 it's wonderfully constructed and obviously beautifully researched. And you've got so much more fascinating new information and new ways to think about Hitler in particular. I'm, I'm, I was really struck when reading the book in in how Hitler sort of reacted to the changing conflict. How did how did he he cope with that? I suppose the, the gradual collapse of German society towards the end of the war. I think really that what happened to Hitler was that you know before the war he was sort of in charge of the sort of diplomatic scene and he knew how to play that game. I mean, he didn't like the diplomatic game, but he knew how to play it. But he always intended to have a war. So in the early part of the war, it was always with Hitler. You know, the famous phrase was, you know, I, I go with the assurance of a sleepwalker on the road that providence dictates. And in a way, he always thought, you know, he, he'd take every sort of challenge on as it came. As it was, Britain and France declared war. But he always intended, didn't he, to, um, to deal with Poland anywhere in the Danzig question. He would have liked 
to have dealt with that by negotiation and Poland to have given in as Austria gave in and as Czechoslovakia gave in. But that didn't happen. So he had to go to war. Britain and France were standing in his way. He didn't really want a war with Britain, as we know. He wanted an alliance with Britain. That didn't happen. But he outflanked the British and the French before the war began because he had the Nazi-Soviet pact, which meant that he was going to defeat Poland anyway. So the question was, why were the French and the British in the war? And, and they weren't in the war to save Poland, plucky Poland. They were in the war to preserve their position as imperial powers. And Germany was threatening that position through its military aggression. So in a way, Hitler was sort of... He did make the running, you know, he did plan immediately to invade France, although he sort of delayed it so long. He did plan that. Then he sort of has a half-hearted attempt to invade Britain. That doesn't work. You know, after that, he decides that because he can't stop Britain and knock Britain out the war completely, he'll try and take on the Soviet Union, defeat the Soviet Union, and hopefully Britain will come to the negotiating table. But of course, taking on the Soviet Union extends the conflict, and in a way it's his biggest mistake. And from that point on, really, you know, Hitler's war is kind of unravelling. He's kind of reacting now to events. He's not in, no longer in control of events as he was before, say, 1940. He was more or less in control against two enemies that he could conceivably think that he might defeat. Although, in actual fact, Britain was, was very much uh, a nation that, you know, was capable of taking on Germany. Maybe not on land, but certainly at sea as you will know. Um, and Britain was far from out of this war, you know, in economic terms. Britain still had a lot of, uh, you know, um, credits with the Americans and they and could get, uh, you know, unlimited munitions in that way. It still had a huge empire. It wasn't actually standing alone. That was a myth. With America supplying the money and the empire also supplying support and the Navy making sure that we didn't get invaded and the Air Force ensuring that, you know, Hitler couldn't get, you know, air superiority even over Britain, then, you know, Britain was, was not... Yeah, I mean, is what's his? How does he cope with this uh, sort of lack of ability to control what's going on? There's an interesting kind of contrast between his incredible power, but also his impotence and being able to to you know to cope with these changes. I think he he doesn't cope too well because uh, he's first of all in a kind of constant dialogue with his generals about you know. What, what should be the objectives of, of the German war effort. You know, the first sort of clash he has with his generals is over the Battle of France. And that's over where should they attack. His generals sort of favour an attack, like in the First World War, through Belgium and then to attack France that way. Uh, what, what used to be called the Schlieffen Plan, to repeat that. And then I think in January 1940, um, a German reconnaissance plane goes down in Belgium in a place called Mechelen. It's called the Mechelen incident because what happens is the the uh, 
the plans for for Case Yellow, the the attack on on France, come into the hands of the Belgians, and they of course give the information to the British and the French, and it is a plan to attack through Belgium. So then he thinks, oh, you know, that's going to be too predictable. And then one of his generals, who's actually been sidelined, uh, von Manstein, he comes up with this plan of going through the Ardennes, bridging the Meuse River, and then sort of motoring through France all the way to Dunkirk and really trapping the, the Allies in the middle between these two, two attacking ar armies. And that works spectacularly well. Now, in, in the attack on the Soviet Union, Hitler decides to go for, you know, the army's idea of a three-pronged attack, breaking the, the army into three groups, you know, Army Group North, Army Group Centre and Army Group South. And Hitler doesn't want to take Moscow. He's very clear that the big prizes are economic, oil and wheat, and they're in the South. So his generals have a sort of argument by saying, you know, but if you take out Moscow, you can knock the head off the regime. Stalin will fall. The whole regime will fall. And there's a big debate over what they should do. The debate goes on all the way through summer to the effect that when they decide to move on Moscow, which is very late in the day, it's almost October when they finally decide, it's too late. It's too late to take Moscow. And of course, they don't take Moscow. And that is, that's really a big setback. And from that point on, the German army and Hitler are playing catch-up. So there's a big sort of, there's lots of disputes between them. And Hitler increasingly becomes, you know, he becomes physically unwell. You know, I say that you can see that he, has, he is not the same Hitler that he was before the war. You know, we think he's got the onset of Parkinson's disease. He suffers from insomnia. He suffers from terrible stomach cramps and various other kind of conditions uh, of the digestive system. Um, he's got some kind of heart problem. His doctor, Dr. Morell, says that he probably had angina as well. We know that he probably had, you know, a heart attack in, in September of 1944. And people who see him now are quite shocked. So in a sense, he's having these arguments with the, the generals. And you've got to understand Hitler's personality. Hitler is not a person. He's a self-made man, really. You know, he's, he's not a member of the he's not a member of the upper classes. Um, but then again, he, he, I'd say, you know, he's not like he said in Mein Kampf. He's, he's, he, he says he's lower middle class. I'd put him a little bit higher than that because his father was a customs official, a leading customs official, really, for a whole town of Linz. And he was, a you know, basically wore a kind of officer's uniform of the Habsburg Empire. And they lived in a massive detached house. So I'd say Hitler was sort of middle class, but... Not not in the sense of being sort of a, a, you know, a member of the upper classes. And he found it difficult because all of the generals were very much, you know, what we would say in Britain would be public school educated, highly qualified, coming from aristocratic families. As he said later, I think after the bomb plot in 1944, he looked down a list of people who were implicated. He said, everybody's called Von. Von this, von that, von the other. He said, I should have purged these people. He said, my big mistake was not Nazifying the army. So really, you know, he didn't, he didn't feel comfortable with those generals anyway. And they were kind of, 
you know, say in Britain, we, we give a greater veneration, don't we, to academics? You know, we, we, we sort of venerate academics and scientists much more around sort of the tables of power than or we did then back 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 then um than than they than they did in Germany in Germany being an officer in the army and going to these great training schools in Potsdam you know that was the kind of Oxford and Cambridge top people if, if you see what I mean and they usually had a good education as well and they were a bit they were a bit kind of high and mighty really and he felt uncomfortable with them he was, Do you think a, he was trying to kind of impose himself on them by his because he, he, he's so, you know, he's up to his elbows in what's happening with the Wehrmacht, particularly in the in the army, and trying to work out, trying to to impose his ideas of what should happen. Do you reckon he's trying to impose himself on on the generals rather than just necessarily take an interest in the army? I think so. I think he's trying to establish his authority. I think that there's an insecurity there. I think it's it's a kind of um, it's a kind of class-based insecurity for him. He doesn't feel comfortable with these people. So really, it's sort of a little bit like sort of, you know, um, I mean, there's a famous, there's a famous um, book by Richard Crossman about Harold Wilson. And Richard Crossman wrote diaries. And most of Wilson's cabinet, Hugh Gateskill and people like that, they'd all gone to Oxford and Cambridge, but they'd all gone to public schools as well and they poke fun richard crossman keeps poking fun at the fact that you know that 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 wilson doesn't have any real sort of middle class sort of taste so that he said he came into the cabinet meeting he said he'd cut a pork pie in half and it was on a plate and that's the kind of thing we see with hitler i think it's those little sort of cultural background issues with hitler he doesn't feel comfortable with these people they're not his friends so and I think yeah. that brings the tension of it. They keep presenting arguments to him and he doesn't really like he doesn't feel comfortable. And the Nazi party was not the type of party where, you know, someone would make a proposition and then people would discuss it. But in, in the German army, you've got to discuss if you're going to have a battle. These generals and field marshals, they want to get maps out and say, look, we need to do this. We need to do that. We need this much resources. And for Hitler, it, it, it was a kind of different world for him. He wanted to say, look, move that army there. And they'd say to him, look, that's not logistically possible. You know, to move that army just like that. They said, you know, the, the, the actual terrain we're talking about is not, not this map. It's hundreds of miles. So we see that, I think. We see the, the difference between the trained military man and the, the, the kind of amateur, really. The amateur who sort of feels as though he, he is a military man now because he's the leader of, of, of the country. So he's kind of pretending he's sort of playing at it, I suppose, isn't he? And how is that different to how he to his management of of the holocaust say because so you've got you know you have got something different here haven't you um with hitler's uh, relationship with the army and how the war's going but also his relationship with with the plan for the final solution there's no tension there you see sam the thing about the holocaust is that there's no tension when he defaults uh responsibility to someone who he trusts in this case it's himmler and heydrich he feels quite comfortable to let them, you know, he kind of lets them make the running. He lets them organise the Holocaust. You know, Hitler takes no sort of integral, close sort of position within the Holocaust. He devolves it. 
you know, the big sort of decisions are taken by Himmler and they're taken by Heydrich. The Vansay Conference, which features in the chapter on 1942, is a good example of that. Hitler's not to be seen at that conference. He has no interplay between Heydrich about the outcome of the conference. There's no correspondence between the two of them. The camps are set up. They're set up by Heydrich and they're set up by Himmler creating Operation Reinhardt. As far as we know, Hitler doesn't take a close uh, interest in that. So we've got a kind of a, a whole genocidal world going on that Hitler is confident about because he feels comfortable with Himmler. He knows Himmler is his kind of agent of death. He doesn't feel as comfortable with these generals. I mean, a good example is his relationship with Halder, Franz Halder. He's the sort of head of the army. And they, they get into all kinds of arguments um, in 19... Um, 42 over you know should they go for the south should they go to stalingrad and there's a massive argument between the two and in the end he sacks halder he's had enough of him he said look you're you're at one point they have a big argument in the summer of 1942 he said look you're draining away my nervous system here he said one of us has got to go and it's got to be you so there was that, that idea that he always as you see through the war he doesn't change it's interesting isn't it you know his Nazi elite stays more or less the same. He'll forgive them anything. They have to do quite a lot to be sort of moved on or moved out. He doesn't really sack his, uh, his elite as Nazi ministers. They're not sacked. But he sacks so many of his generals. It's almost like musical chairs. I mean, at one point in the book, you sort of see him having an argument with Rommel. Then he's having an argument with another general. Then he's having an argument with Yodel. It's like a, a, you know, a non-stop sort of series of arguments. And if something goes wrong, his solution is, right, okay, you're getting replaced by him. And then if that goes wrong, it's like, okay, you're, you're gone as well. You're going to be replaced by him. You know, some of these generals were sacked six or seven times and then returned. <laughs> How does, I mean, so it's obviously different, his relationship with the army, as it is to those who are organising the Holocaust. How about um, the people who are dealing with domestic policy, the home front? I mean, what, what, what's happening there? Well, there's a little bit of chaos on the home front. I mean, it, here's an example. It's reckoned that about 80% of all of the laws that were enacted on the home front, the Hitler had nothing to do with them. They were done by the, the individual Nazi ministers and by the Gauleiters in the local areas. And so Hitler had no real say. He sort of devolved the whole of, of, of German government to a range of different organisations and bodies. I think there were 42 different governmental organisations that, that claimed some responsibility over various areas. Then you had, you know, uh, then you had the sort of the leading ministers, if you like. I suppose you would say that the, the prime ministers were, you know, uh, Goering, um, Himmler, uh, Goebbels, um, these were the these were the and Speer when he became the armaments minister, and you'd say that they were they were a kind of more or less an inner circle uh, of the of the Nazi leadership. But but on the home front, it was chaotic. I mean, Goebbels was trying when 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 they lost at Stalingrad. Goebbels was trying to actually bring about total war because the economy hadn't been turned over to total war, and he wanted to create a kind of like a, a an inner ministry on the home front. But that came to nothing, mainly because, as Goebbels says in his diary, he's too frightened to broach it to Hitler. 
He sort of, he's, he says to Gehring, you know, asks him, you know, have you approached the idea of this council before? And he says, uh, oh, it's it's difficult. He said, I'll, I'll do it the next time I meet him. And then at the next meeting in the diary, he said, I, I, the Fiora had too many problems. I didn't want to bring it up. And sometimes <laughs> a general will come. Uh, you know, it, it it might be you know it might be one of the leading generals, uh, Guderian, for example. Guderian comes in, in um, he comes in the August of nineteen forty one, and um, Yodel says to him, "Whatever you do, don't talk about the attack on Moscow." You know, it's it's, it's sort of it's a little bit like you know, sort of that that idea of when you know when your dad's angry with you and your brother, and your your brother says, "Look, he's in a real mood today, Sam. Don't talk to him." And it was because of fear of unpredictability as well, of no one knowing actually how he would react. He, he, he will he will react. He will he will he will. He didn't actually blow up. Actually, the interesting point that I found by looking, I looked at the military. I mean, as you see, it runs through the book. I have the military. Meetings. I've got all the military meetings. I looked at all the military meetings that Hitler held. What was interesting in those meetings was I kept going through them and thinking, where's this ranting and raving Hitler? Because it wasn't there. Now, yeah. these were taken by a stenographer and were verbatim records. And he insisted that they were verbatim records because there was a big sort of row in the uh, summer of 1942, where Hitler felt he was getting misinterpreted by some of his generals. It was Halder, really. He felt that he was misinterpreting what he was saying. So he said, look, I'm bringing my own stenographers in to take anything. And what you find is it's the generals who are making all the the opinionated statements. And it's Hitler who's reacting to them. And more more times than not... He sort of says, yeah, okay, let's go for that, or let's go for this. He doesn't seem to be a guy leading the war to me. He seems to be a guy reacting to what other people are saying after 19, after after Stalingrad. He gets a bit frightened as well, like anybody, you know, anybody who's had a, a run of great success, when they got get some defeats, it knocks the confidence, doesn't it? It kind of knocks the yeah. confidence. If everyone's going around saying, oh, you, you, you're great, you're a great guy, and then a load of people start, you do something wrong, and a load of people say, he's not such a great guy, then, then it starts to get through. We're all human, aren't we? And Hitler was, he was, he didn't like criticism. No, I mean, I think it's really interesting that he destroys his private papers, doesn't he, towards the end of the yeah, war, which yeah. I think is a, is a sign of him not being able to cope with it anyway. And what yeah. do we know about that? What was going on there? I think really he decided because of course and as well remember Himmler destroyed his papers most of the Gestapo papers went as well and the SS papers went I think they knew that what they were doing was criminal I think they were pretty clear that a lot of what they did was criminal I mean he could have kept some of his letters I mean this is why I mean I say at the beginning don't I you know People say, oh, another book about Hitler. But in a way, it's not a book about Hitler. You have to construct a Third Reich book, even if you're writing a biography of Hitler. Most of the biographies of Hitler are not actually biographies at all. I've written a biography. I wrote a biography of Sophie Scholl. But I had all her letters and I had diaries. And therefore, I could get into her personality. With Hitler, all you have is what other people thought about him or wrote about him. You haven't got his own letters. 
I mean, in this book, actually, I've got some letters there which are quite interesting. You'll have noticed this kind of uh, bromance with Mussolini. You know, the, those <laughs> thanks to, you know, the Italian side of the bargain, those letters have survived. So you're able to sort of see his letters. Uh, Gable's diaries allow us, you know, with, with his little friend, you know, little Joey, as as he's called in the producers, you know. There's that, that, there's that relationship, isn't it? There's a close relationship there between them. And then you're... And then you, but but you haven't got like you said if he he, destro- he destroyed his entire letters with Ava Brown so we don't really know the inner workings of that relationship which is a very important relationship and we don't know all of what he was saying to Himmler the order for the Holocaust and all this correspondence for the Holocaust it may have been there he may have got you know copies of all these sort of you know uh, initiatives like Operation Reinhardt but he has no real private papers you have to sort of construct you know, Hitler's life through other people. That's why I, I find, personally, I think that you should only read uh, histories of the Third Reich. The biographies really are pretending to be biographies. You can't really write a biography. I mean, you know this, Sam. You can't write a biography without a diary and letters. It's Yeah, without something. Um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating as well. And I, I'd like to, to trace the, the change, you know, if I could, in my imaginary history, if Hitler's diaries did exist, to trace the change from his kind of, the, the sort of manic boasting of, of maybe the start of the war in 1940, where he's so full of um, sort of, energy and strength either whether he's talking about himself or about germany um you know and how that 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 kind of collapses you know along along with german society along with his ambitions i think that'd be a fascinating thing to study yes yeah i think that you know the it's obviously you know a lot of things are, are lost to history um that's the problem with a lot of history isn't it that you know some things are sort of lost i mean ancient history we know there are loads of questions that remain unanswered because we we simply haven't got got the answer i mean i remember when i was at university i was taught by a guy called uh, dr morris Keane, who who was an expert on anglo-saxon history anyone who, who who was taught by him at oxford will remember how brilliant he was and and, and he, he'd read your essay out to him and i i because anglo-saxon history is very speculative i found this certain entrances about this guy called Thorkill the Tall from, you know, he's a Danish king. He came to Britain. He killed the king of Ipswich, you know, and then he, and then he got a load of bounty and he went back. Anyway, I wrote this essay based around Thorkill the Tall and I got to the end of it and Morris said, very, very interesting, he said, really interesting. He said, he's obviously a neglected figure. He said, "You know, to take the, uh, you know, to take the king of Ipswich and kill him." I think he gouged out the ideas of the local the eyes of the local bishop as well. And he, and I said, "Well, do you think he was important?" He said, "Well, Frank," he said, "we don't know. <laughs> We've got no evidence." <laughs> and and in, a, in a sense, that's that that taught me the idea of an historical blind alley. And in the Third Reich, you've got a lot of historical blind alleys. You know, you've got the Gestapo records for you know, the Rhineland area, but you've got no Gestapo records for Berlin, which, of course, was the major area where there was opposition to the Third Reich. So there's lots of gaps there. You know, there's obviously the Holocaust material. You're reconstructing that from, you know, you're reconstructing that from a whole range of sources, including um, trial evidence later on, eyewitness evidence and stuff like that. So... It is it is a strange thing that they destroyed so much of the record of the Third Reich, and that's why 
it's great that that you can rely on so many other scholars if you're writing a book on the Third Reich because one person it would take five lifetimes to to do the donkey work of going through all these different areas. So it's good that lots of new material comes through. I mean, I I incorporate a lot of the Soviet material. We see in that book how much that the uh, uh, Russians relied on, you know, American aid. And even, you know, even Stalin, now we've got delved into the Soviet archives, we can see that even Stalin admitted that, you know, without US aid, you know, the Russians wouldn't have turned the tide on, on the Eastern Front. And the Russians really do turn the tide in terms of having huge supplies. 50% of their supplies are coming from the Soviet Union from the late on in 1943. And it's interesting, at that point, they start to, they start to turn, the, turn the tide then. I mean, some of the things they were getting, not just spam, by the way, they were eating spam. And great, you know, <laughs> great boots, great army boots and things like that. Waterproof uh, coats, but also you know telecommunications. They had they rapidly increased their telecommunications in tanks, and also you know the the transport vehicles they got. They were moving at a far more rapid pace. I mean, towards 1944, you get kind of communiques coming from the field saying, "Why you know some of the uh, the infantry are, are reporting back to the, the the military headquarters and saying, "Why are these Russians moving so fast?" <laughs> Because all of a sudden they've got they've got better equipment, so I think you know I think it's a, it's it's a, it's interesting the Third Reich. I do think there is scope. I do I do think that it is thoroughly warranted to keep looking at the Third Reich. I don't know how long my book will last. It, you know if it lasts five years, I'll be happy. But you know people come to me and say, "Oh, <laughs> the famous." I always say this because people laugh. What about Ian Kershaw? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's the big thing. What about Ian Kershaw? But Ian Kershaw's book, as he as he would admit, is twenty five years old. Yeah, yeah. Lots of the material that's in there is 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 being superseded now by the opening of Soviet archives or new information about Hitler's private life. I mean, Kershaw admitted that he didn't know a lot about the Vienna years. I mean, a guy called Lothar Mactarm wrote a book about Hitler's uh, sexual past. And even Kershaw, when he did the review of it, said, if I'd have known this, I'd have incorporated this. So a book on the Third Reich will only last, you know, you're lucky now if it'll last five years. And I mean, older yeah, I mean, ones... I mean, so I'm saying, I mean, coming out with your new one, you've got so, so much important new ways of thinking about things and new things to say. And you talk particularly interestingly about um, denazification, which I thought was, was, was fascinating, and what we actually know and how our understanding of that process of denazification, whether it actually worked or not. I wanted to include that, Sam, because I think that it gets missed out. When you read books of the Third Reich, sort of, you know, Hitler commits suicide... Or escapes to Argentina, <laughs> if you're a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> but, you know, Hitler commits suicide, and then the, the sort of the whole thing sort of ends, doesn't it, you know, with the signing of the unconditional yeah. surrender. And I thought, well, you know, I think the reader wants to know what happened in Germany after the war, what happened at the war trials, what happened in denazification, um, you know, what, what was Germany purged of all these Nazis? And it's quite shocking, actually. I mean, a lot of people who've read that final chapter, which is called Hitler's Long Shadow, I won't spoil it all, but, um, you know, they said to me, you know, it's amazing how many of these Nazis stayed in positions of power. Um, you know, they kept having to sack 
government ministers because somebody would come out and say, oh, God, they'd say to, to uh, Adenauer, oh, guess what? You know, that transport minister, we've just found he's implicated in the Holocaust, you know, and then he'd have to go. And the judiciary, you know, 60 percent. It's horrific when you think about it. 60 percent of Hitler's judges in the people's court, the horrible people's court, you know, where Roland Freisler was was humiliating uh, uh, defendants all the time. I mean, in the trial of Sophie Scholl, the two other judges, he died. Freisler was killed in a bomb attack in 1945. But the two other judges at that trial of Sophie Scholl, who was executed by guillotine, they went on being major judges in the West German system. And no, denazification didn't work. I mean, I, I say it again. You know, they, they used to say all you needed was a personal certificate because yeah. it probably still exists. Personal was a soap powder that claimed it could wash whiter than white. And everyone mm -hmm. said that all, well, all you had to do was go, to, go through this denazification process, be exonerated, and you'd, you'd, be, you'd, you'd become whiter than white. And, I mean, the denazification process was a little bit of a joke. I mean, basically it was find two people who could say that although you were a Nazi, you weren't horrible. And then you, if you got two references, you, you passed. And very few, very few of the, the um, perpetrators of the Holocaust were ever brought to trial. 5,000? We think about possibly 4 million people were implicated in the Holocaust, but only 5,000 were ever brought to trial. There was never an Auschwitz trial. You know, there was, there was a trial in Germany that, that, that was uh, about it, but only with a limited number of defendants. There was never a Holocaust trial in Germany where they actually investigated their own culpability. Um, I think there was, a, I, think, uh, on, I think at the end of the war, someone suggested to Adenauer in 1955 that he should have, you know, like a memorial for the ending yeah. of the war. And Adenauer wrote back and said something like, um, uh, it's not good to celebrate your defeats though, is it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's a good place to end. Uh, Frank, it's absolutely fantastic. Guys, I'd, I'd urge you all to read read The Hitler Years, Disaster 1940 to 1945. Uh, it's, it's, it's really, really important. It helps you understand um, this important part of the Third Reich and also Hitler's role within it. Frank, so, thanks so much for talking to us today and I look forward to speaking to you again. Cheers, Sam. Thank you. There you are, everyone. I very much hope you enjoyed that fascinating interview. As I said at the beginning, do please check out all of the uh, previous episodes we've done on interlinking themes. Do make sure that you follow me on social media. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. And I'm at James Daybell. And the podcast is at Unexpected Pod. You can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And you can find out about everything that we are up to on our website historiesoftheunexpected.com we also have a Patreon page and anything that you can give towards production costs uh, during these difficult times of lockdown would be much appreciated absolutely it will allow us to produce more and more and more and we're really diverting a lot of our time and attention to homeschooling at the moment so help would be appreciated thanks a lot guys speak to you soon bye take care bye Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.